is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission, to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On October 12, 2018, archaeologist Stephen Mrazowski from the University of Massachusetts at Boston met a panel of SIAM's students and faculty for an engaging dialogue on topics of archaeological science, colonialism, and climate change. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio SIAM. Hello, I'm Kurt Jordan, Director of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies, and I'm uh, hosting this episode of Radio SIAM's with Steve Mrazowski, who's a professor of anthropology uh, at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, and the founding director of the Andrew Fisk Center for Archaeological Research. Today's discussion is going to be based on uh, selections from three of Steve's recent articles. Uh, there's a co-authored piece with Ray Gould and Heather Law Pezzarassi uh, from 2015 called Rethinking Colonialism, Indigenous Innovation, and Colonial Inevitability. Uh, there's an article from Postmedieval Archaeology published this year in 2018 called Reimagining Political Economy as a Foundation for Archaeologies of the Past, Present, and Future. And then there is a chapter from a 2018 edited volume uh, called Historical Archaeology and Environment uh, that uh, the chapter is titled The Archaeology of Climate Change. Is Unbridled Commodity Production Sustainable? So welcome, Steve, and I'm, and I'm hoping we're going to have a good discussion today. Thank you. Well, hello, my name is Liam Murphy. I'm a second year PhD student in the anthropology department. Um, and uh, my primary interests are in the archaeology of uh, New York State in the 17th, 18th century, particularly uh, Tuscarora occupations in central New York um, and uh, collaborative research methodology. Um, and I had a question that was kind of focused on, a, on uh, something from your talk last night. And especially um, kind of um, this identification as scientists, so archaeology as a science and archaeologists as scientists. Um, and I was wondering, I guess that's kind of contrast to this idea of archaeologists more as storytellers or as interpreters. Um, and I was wondering what you think kind of you gained from that perspective, what limitations you think there are to that perspective as archaeology as science. Talk a little bit about that. Sure, sure. That's a good question, by the way, because it, there, there are times when it may seem that there's a contradiction there. Um, so for me, when I think of the concept of science, uh, I don't mean it as a way of thinking about it as a detached scientist who tries to seek some objective reality. Instead, for me, it's all about the methods and techniques and that the, the rigor that we bring to them. Um, storytelling is ultimately what we do best, and I don't have a problem with that. But I like my stories to be empirically based in a way that any scientist would accept. Um, to me, the, the actual story of the science is really interesting. And as I pointed out in my talk last night, uh, somewhat ironically, the indigenous folks I work with, they find that an unappealing part of what we do. They like the science. They don't like what science has sort of done to them, which is to totally objectify them and their history. Um, but they do appreciate the kind of rigor that we bring to it as scientists. My name is uh, Alexandra Walton. I'm a first-year MA student in archaeology here at Cornell. 
um, I'm interested in indigenous, indigenous archaeology and colonialism in North America. And uh, my question relates to your Archaeology of Climate Change article. Um, so President Donald Trump has spurred the growing political divide when it comes to global warming by calling it a hoax, uh, withdrawing from the Paris Agreement and eliminating terms like global warming and climate change from numerous government websites. And so although archaeology can provide a deep history of commodity production and its connections to climate change, will these studies convince climate change deniers when countless other scientific studies have not accomplished this? And also, what's the connection between archaeology and policy change? Okay. Uh, the, the answer to the first question is no. <laughs> uh, I don't think that it will. And the reason why I say that is just because um, I, I can't speak for President Trump. Um, I don't think his beliefs are deep in anything. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is that in my experience, when you come face to face with a climate change denier, it's primarily based on a deep religious conviction that humans don't have the power to overcome or change what God has dictated. Um, there's no, to the best of my knowledge, there are really no climate deniers who are actual members of the scientific community. Um, in terms of actually making that connection with policy, um, I, I have a hope that somehow through popular media, some of what we do and some of what we say will get through to the public. I think the best evidence we have to promote climate change is Unfortunately, events like we just saw in Florida, which was the Hurricane Michael that devastated the area. Events like that have taken place many times over the course of recorded history, but the, the, the weight of the, uh, how quickly they come and, and their force has noticeably changed. And I'm one of those who believes that that's just evidence of climate change. And so I'm hoping, unfortunately, that tragedies like that will wake up some folks. My strongest feeling is that politicians who engage in climate denying and turn it into policy should be subject to criminal prosecution based on the impact those decisions end up having on people's daily lives. Hi, I'm Dusty Bridges. I'm a first-year PhD student in anthropology. Uh, I am most interested in refugees and other incorporated communities among the Haudenosaunee in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and I have a more methodological question for you. Uh, we often discuss vetting historic documents and written records for biases and things that we can't take at face value. Um, in your work with the Nipmuc, you used a lot of historic cartography. So I was wondering if you could speak to how you approach those documents um, and if that differs from, uh, ma if maps differ, differ from written records. Okay. Um, I appreciate that question on a couple of levels. Uh, most importantly, one of the things, have it been, been raised at a time where we would look at those kinds of documents, anything done by a European, as having an embedded bias in them, which I accept. I then uh, actually, we found, I found an empirical check to that, which was a cornfield that we found in Cape Cod that the orientation and size of the field and uh, a nearby weatu or structure was identical to everything that Samuel D. Champlain had drawn. I know he didn't do it, but somebody else did it, of that very area. 
that was the first time I thought, okay, well, there is a bias here, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're informationally incorrect. With the recent work that we've done, we've now gone full circle, which is to say that in the maps that we use, sometimes they are amazingly accurate. Often they have a bias written into them. So, for example, an 1886 deed map that we've used to identify known sites shows those sites to be remarkably close to where they thought they were in 1886, yet the same map uh, attributes a known foundation that we excavated from the mid-18th to the mid-19th century as a 17th century structure. So that's obviously their way of seeing any kind of a landscape feature and just attributing it to an earlier period. And last but not least, we've also come to realize that there is value in these biased accounts because it documents the nature of the bias at the time. And this is part of constructing an historical narrative that we need to know what it's based on. And in our case, what we're finding is that that narrative is generated based on primary embedded assumption of indigenous extinction. So that all you have to do, for example, is go to any 19th century history and it'll open with a chapter that always is, it's almost generic, describing the last of the whomever living in a small, you know, cottagey thing out in the middle of a swamp. And that's the way they begin, because they have to begin their new narrative with the end of an older narrative. So rather than ignoring those, we, we find that there's use in, in understanding them. And the struggle that we have, actually, is just coming up with a word to describe it, like rehabilitate, resuscitate. You can't, so far we're struggling with that word, but that's a process. And by the way, in terms of cartographic uh, examples, we're also having that same problem with archaeological maps of sites dug even in the 80s and the 90s, which now we're trying to geo-reference them, and it's not an easy task. So. Hi, I'm Samantha Sampt. I'm a fifth-year PhD student in anthropology studying the exchange of exotic materials in northeastern North America during the 16th century. And I have a question for you in your uh, Reimagining Political Economy article. In that article, you state that political economy is less useful for examining the lives of Native Americans in New England. So I'm wondering what framework do you suggest employing instead to investigate practices such as maybe pre-Columbian long-distance exchange? And would that be an example of the anti-market notion that you mentioned in that article as well? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I wish I had a better clear-cut answer for you, but I don't in the sense that the main goal of that article was to try to, again, rehabilitate a notion like political economy, but without the assumed deep connection to Marxism. Um, I've spent a lot of time recently going back to the late 19th century, early 20th century, reading biographies of famous leftists, somebody like Rosa Luxemburg, for example. And what you discover is, is that Marx and, and his followers had a very particular view of political economy as a, as a sort of a scientific sociology. 
Yet political economy as a concept has a deeper history, and that that deeper history is more about the intertwining of economy with culture and politics. So I think the notion of political economy as a market-driven you know, uh, a model may work for some indigenous groups because indigenous groups do a lot of trading. Um, but the thing that it doesn't do and that I worry about is the assumption that all of a sudden we start to look at indigenous folks as little capitalists. Um, I believe that there were folks in the past who had that mindset in terms of maximizing profit, but there does seem to be a different sort of economic equation that's less about maximization and more about community integration. So in that sense, I think a, a, a model that focuses on something other than maximization might be better at trying to understand exchange. So for example, a prestige uh, uh, item that's, tra that's traded over a long distance has a lot of significance for folks. And I think that there's no probable difference between that and somebody purchasing an exotic uh, uh, item in a, in a market-driven economy. The difference, I believe, is market manipulation. Um, and I'd like to think, and this is probably a prejudicial view, that in indigenous societies, there were cultural controls that sort of put a damper on that kind of maximization model. But I also know that folks from my part of the world, which is southern New England, saw the Iroquois as much different in terms of their economic practices than they saw themselves. And they saw the Iroquois as more maximizers and less sort of these folks that were just trying to maintain cultural integration. So, so I don't have a model for you, but I think that's what we need to look for. We need to generate a, a model that contrasts with that. I'd like to think that political economy has some something to add to that, but it has to be stripped of its association with Marx, not to reject Marx, because a lot of what Marx said was right, but what I don't like about Marx is it's a very historicized view of the world, meaning that for him, capitalism could have only risen in Europe, where it obviously could have and has precursors in the Near East, in China, uh, probably in the New World somewhere. And I think as long as you have this historicized, Europeanized view of things, then you're not an unbiased, detached scientist, which is what Marx actually thought of. He never had a job. <laughs> Thank you. All right, so uh, this is uh, Kurt Jordan again. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, one of the things that, just to comment on what you just said, one of the, the things that I, I sort of, I, and I get this from Eric Wolf, is distinguishing between Marxian and Marxist, right? And so I think that what you're describing is that there are still aspects of Marx's work as sort of employed that you do use some Marxian thinking, but some of the sort of very rigid the uh, ideas about how what happened in the past and what was right. going to happen in the future that clearly have not paid out. Or, or, uh, Can I just comment on that? Because one of the things that I discovered by going back and reading people like Rosa Luxemburg and even Karl Polanyi was that they imagined that the communist revolution was coming like any day. They thought it was so close that they were going to see it easily in their lifetime. 
And as they aged and they saw that it wasn't coming, they were confused. And I think that that is the aspect of Marxism that folks sometimes tend to forget, that he too believed that any day the proletariat would throw off the shackles of the bourgeoisie and, and have a total revolution. And so he breaks down into the re revolutionary camp and then the reformist camp. And the reformist camp, which is, all right, we've got capitalism, we're not going to get rid of it, we have to reform it, is clearly the, the more popular and more consistent view throughout Europe and also for leftists in the United States. Um, so that distinction is just important. So I'm going to keep going on the, uh, on the vein of Marxian theory. And so you use uh, pretty consistently across these readings um, ideas that you've gotten from uh, by way of Bertel Ullman oh, yeah. about uh, about sort of uh, the connections between the past, the present, and the future, and uh, and also I think maybe from pragmatism the idea of emphasizing the openness of pasts, uh, presents, and, and futures, which is a which is a political project as well as a, as an intellectual one. And the example that you use frequently in your writings is the early finds of plastics, I guess, in terms of things like costume jewelry and where you can just sort of look at those and say, oh, no, I can, you know, here are the seeds of what's coming to a certain degree. I was wondering if you could just say a little bit more about that. And then uh, I guess maybe the emphasis of the question is another methodological one. Are there ways to help you uncover alternatives? Either in the past, uh, the present. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how, how the future works there, but uh, just sort of methodologically, are there ways that you can sort of help open up your thinking uh, to see the past as an open-ended process rather than something that's going to lead to a, a, a particular end? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it, it truly is because I mean, if I was going to self-critique myself, I would say, yeah, well, you're you know, you're just you know what happened, and you're asking why didn't anybody else know this future in the late, 18, late 19th century. And I think it's unfair of me to suggest that somebody should have known in the 1870s that their reliance on petrochemicals was going to lead to open, almost global conflict 100 years later. Um, and yet, when I look at the kinds of decisions that are made today based on short-term short assumptions, economic assumptions, political assumptions, I worry that we're not looking forward enough. But to go back to your question about alternatives, I think it's a, a legitimate point, and, and my answer is twofold. One is you have to imagine different pasts to imagine different futures, because one of the most fundamental things that I've come to realize is, is that we have a tendency to view the past as over. You know, it's already happened. And by doing that, we fail to connect those pasts to uh, a present that is in process and heading towards a future that nobody really knows. Once you think of it that way, then there's hope. There's hope for a different outcome. And for the indigenous folks who I work with, and this is something I gained from working with them, it's that they don't like the notion that their future is already decided and that it's over and that there was an inevitability to their demise that we sort of figure they they figured out themselves at some point. So in terms of alternatives, I think that good 
basic research science, if you want to use that concept, has to imagine alternative explanations. So like in the case of the plastics, I have to acknowledge that I doubt seriously anybody would have had the foresight to think, well, this, this really inexpensive jet you know, reproduction that now allows me to dress like Queen Victoria is really going to lead to a lot of trouble someday. I, I, I think that, I, I don't think it takes much to imagine that that's a little bit too much to expect. However, we don't have that excuse. We can't say, oh, well, we don't really know what's going to happen in the future, so there's nothing we can do about it. We now understand the trajectory of climate change is such that we can predict its rather quick outcome. You know, there was just a new UN report the other day that said, well, what we thought was going to happen in 100 years is going to happen by 2040. Um, and then I have lunch with some friends who own a property on the coast of New Jersey, and I'm told, we don't have hurricanes. And I said, well, what do you mean? They, well, we have storm surges. And I, you know, because they're friends, I'm like, okay, but the storm surge is connected to the hurricane. But if you want to knock down your house and build a new one because you imagine that you're not going to have hurricanes, okay, go ahead, but uh, it's not going to work. And so my point in all of these trying to construct archaeologies of the future and drawing on Hotel Holman is to say if you believe that the past is prologue to the future, then we ought to be able to imagine a variety of potential futures and start asking ourselves hard questions about how we choose now to make sure that the futures we want to avoid can be avoided. Thank you. Hi, this is Liam again. Um, so I was really interested in your use of uh, kind of post-humanism in, uh, in the essay about ecology. And um, I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit more about what especially you find the value in those concepts um, and what kind of decentric human, especially an archaeological kind of uh, work where it seems like the human is the only thing that ties these archaeological assemblages together. Um, how, what kind of doors that opens up for you in terms of thinking and what kind of possibilities you might have? Right. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you a little long answer, but it's just to put it in context. I started to come to this when I was working in England, and I realized that specialists there, uh, I'm talking about paleoanthropologists, palynologists, faunal analysts, never are incorporated, at least this point in the 80s and 90s, were never incorporated into the planning for any archaeological projects. They were always separate. When I was a graduate student, I had the good chance of working with Scotty McNeish, who sort of uh, created an interdisciplinary approach where all of the specialists were part of the planning process. So what that led me to understand was is that there was a very human-centered focus in archaeology that at least needed to be balanced with the knowledge that uh, a plant ecologist has questions about the data that might be different than the archaeologist. Post-humanism, um, and by the way, post-humanism, if you asked me what it is, I would never answer that question because not even the you know, most ardent post-humanist would suggest that it's a, a coherent line of thinking yet. What it brings for me is just this decentering of that humans are somehow living in a separate reality. They're not. 
They're not, and there's no way to support that. Yet at the same time, as, as you saw in that article, I have to, after championing the approach of post-humanism, say, okay, but now I'm going to break one of the cardinal rules of post-humanism because I'm just going to focus on human behavior because from my point of view, it's, it's, it's a destructive set of behaviors that we can't attribute to the other members of biotic communities. So that's what post-humanism does. So this is Alexander again. Um, so you mentioned in your talk yesterday, as well as in the Rethinking Colonialism piece about uh, federal recognition and um, how federal policies for tribal recognition are still largely based on Western conceptions of linear progression. And so my question is, how can archaeology be used to change federal policies in ways that are compatible with Native conceptions of history? Oh, thanks for that. That's a good one. Um, I think in a couple of ways. First, to challenge the, that basic assumption. So in the case of the uh, Hassan Misko Nipmuc, to, to challenge the notion that they needed to supply documents rather than oral history or, in our case, archaeological data. So I think that I see that in a very legal uh, uh, way, in the sense that I would like to confront lawyers who argue that there's precedent when their data, their support, a documentation isn't as rigorous as mine. Um, I, I also feel that in terms of federal recognition, you have to acknowledge the fact that the biases, especially the one we had discussed earlier about the notion of assumed decay and loss, the, the, the myth of the disappearing Indian, runs throughout all of that. And what I think that does is it makes even the process of federal recognition be based on an assumption of assumed extinction. Even though federal recognition clearly recognizes that these are folks here and now, it's based on an assumption of a narrative that has an end to it, that we don't ask of people. For example, we don't ask white people to demonstrate their ethnicity according to a, a measure that is, is, is much less demanding than we would apply to indigenous Hi, this is Dusty again, and I'd like to follow up on Liam's question about posthumanist approach um, and how you perceive the relationship of a posthumanist framework to perhaps indigenous archaeology when uh, the epistemology or worldview of the indigenous community is already somewhat like um, the posthumanist approach you're discussing and doesn't uh, necessarily prescribe to the nature culture divide. Well, yeah, I, I, I would agree, and, and that's one of the things that I find, um, going back to your question, Sam, about uh, an indigenous framework, if you will. Um, I want to be careful because there are times when I find that I'm going to romanticize the indigenous side and imagine that everybody there, you know, every time they kill an animal, they drop to the ground and say a prayer. I don't know if when you're doing herds of caribou that you're going to do that every time. Um, so I want to be careful about that. Yet there absolutely is a, a, a point of tangency between notions like post-humanism and a de-human-centered understanding of the, the universe that seems to be much more present in indigenous societies. Um, but there, it's not just indigenous societies. There are other, you know, world religions that have that kind of understanding. So, to me, they're parallel understandings. And 
my main reason for doing that is and trying to stress that is I just feel like there are different realities that exist simultaneously. And we ourselves are not always aware of them. So that you don't see why smoking cigarettes is bad for you because you don't understand the biology. Uh, you're just looking, you understand the biology when you get a bit of a high from nicotine. Uh, something that I, I, I was never a big smoker, but in England everybody smoked, so I would smoke when they smoked. And I still to this day don't get it because I take a drag off a cigarette and then have to sit down because I'm dizzy and they'll say, yeah, but that's what we like. And I'm just like, oh, okay. I just don't <laughs> understand that. So, you know, I don't know how you imagine yourself as a human being, as a cultural uh, uh, creature and not as a biological creature. And yet I think sometimes we tend to do that. Hi, Sam again. Uh, so in the articles, uh, you talk about commodities throughout all of the articles uh, today, and I'm wondering if there can be commodities in non-capitalist economies, or could there have been things possibly categorized as or similar to commodities in the pre-Columbian Northeast, and how you, if you could just talk a bit more about how you use that language. Sure, sure. Sure. I mean, the, the basic concept of a commodity is something that is standardized and is priced. Um, and one of the things that were really challenging uh, notions about the history of capitalism, for example, is, is that we have instances where, for example, German merchants as part of the Hanseatic League are going to places like Iceland in the 13th century, bringing with them a new measure, like literally saying to the Icelandic folks, you're going to do all our fishing, you're going to uh, uh, process the fish in a particular way, but here's a new ruler for you, and this ruler is how you'll measure all our fish, and we want them to be these different sizes in terms of the fillets you're going to then salt and send back to Germany. To me, that's a commodification. And that's a commodification because it standardizes things. And that is what I see as a notion like instrumentality, that you take a product of nature and you subdivide it, but you do it in such a consistent manner that it's part of an, uh, a system that measures profit, which is what they were after in those days. So yes, I think that there were commodities like that in pre-capitalist indigenous societies here. And I think the key is standardization and the level of production. So that if you have folks even doing something like parrot feathers, and you're collecting them en masse, and you're dividing them up according to some level of measurement, and then you are commodifying them by sending them into the American Southwest, for example, and saying, well, I expect to get this much in return. It doesn't have to be monetized. It doesn't have to be a certain thing, a way of measuring it. But when Oliver Cromwell wanted to invade Ireland and he couldn't get his, the, the wealthy merchants and some of the nobility to support it, he had to come up with a way of attracting their attention. And he sent uh, uh, somebody there at the time, and what they invented was a, a, a unit of measurement of land that they could then offer the nobility and say, for every man on horseback, we'll give you like 10 hectares of Irish land. And so that's a, 
another way of con con think conceiving of a commodity. And, and I think the key is standard. So it would always weigh the same or be the same size or something like that. But once you start down that path, then you're moving in the direction of a path that I think ultimately leads to a capitalist kind of Come on. So I guess to follow up, so it seems like the priced part of it sort of drops out a little bit. I mean, so yeah. it's, it's, it's measured though, but it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily have a set value. I well, I think that when you get into a set price, now that's an abstraction price, all right? It's very different that it hinges on Marx's notion of use value versus exchange value. The idea is, is that if you're thinking about an indigenous society, you know, even a highly complex one, they're bringing up commodities to exchange. They may not be thinking about, all right, I'm only going to give 80 of these for 30 of those um, according to a price. But the idea that they would have some notion of measurability and comparability of value is moving somewhere between a use value, which is the notion of barter. I've got corn, you've got hides. How many hides will you give me for how much corn? And you sort of agree to that as a, as a negotiation versus, okay, hides are going for you know, a pound 30 on the London market, so that's what I got to get here. That's a very different thing. And that, that, the difference there is an abstraction. Now, let me just say one thing about abstraction. Abstraction is the devil, in my estimation. The abstraction is the problem. Because once you can abstract humans into commodities, you've crossed a really dangerous barrier. And people have been doing that for thousands of years. Um, any form of slavery is basically dehumanizing an individual and seeing them as a commodity. But when you abstract it, and you abstract literally everything in life down to a number, for example, what that does is it distances you from the re reality of those individuals and your own experience. And that's how people can say, all right, our profits are down, you're going to take a pay cut without asking, well, what's the ultimate result of that pay cut? What if they can't buy the commodities that you sell anymore? By the way, that's what Rosa Luxemburg wanted to know when she looked at Marxism. She wanted to know, well, what happens if the workers can't afford what they're making anymore? Won't the whole system collapse? And when we look at the history of capitalism and we see amazing oscillations of you know, up markets and down markets. Well, that's what that's all about. And that, by the way, is built into capitalism, and it's actually something that is the basis of hedge funds. And you, the level of abstraction with hedge fund folks is just beyond comprehension. Why don't you run with that? Hey, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm actually going to keep in the same vein here. So this may be more of a historical question, but um, so I some of these uh, issues about commodification, I, I hesitate to use this word because I know that you, uh, you that you've been trying to kill it. But so if we're thinking about the prehistory of capitalism, for yeah, example, yeah. Um, so I just maybe historically, 
Um, I think you're clearly saying that commodification came before some of the more classic right. Marxist ideas about what constituted capitalism, like enclosure, right. factories, alienation of people from the means of production. So I, I guess, could you say a little bit more about the historical sequence or maybe the relationship between those uh, those two things? Sure, sure. Although I, I, I would say first is that to really outline the historical precedence is, is a great project to do. Um, it's difficult for me to imagine some of the more complex urban societies uh, from Western Asia um, as not being pre-capitalist in some ways. And again, it doesn't mean that the economy is being run like a capitalist economy, because in those cases, the nobility or the folks in power really controlled things. But again, it's this process of commodification and abstraction that begins to go down a road. And you can see it. I mean, I, I mean, historians will tell you that the big shift comes with something as simple as double entry bookkeeping. Double entry bookkeeping was the ability of merchants to demonstrate at the end of the year that they were balancing their books. Okay, so what's the significance of that? Well, one thing it does is it allows them to operationalize credit and their ability to demonstrate that they can balance their books. Ergo, they're being fair with the way they're, they're pricing items and, and, and giving people credit gives them credibility. And once they achieved credibility in the 14th and 15th centuries, there's a major political shift at that point where liberal forms of government, and I'm not talking about like East Coast liberals, I'm just talking about non-religious based, non-nobility based forms of government, start to, for the very first time, really see merchants emerge as potential political forces. Because before that, religion really looks down on anybody dealing with money. And, and I mean, even in today's world, Islamic banks don't charge interest. Uh, they, they, if they're Islamic banks in the United States, because they become part of the United States, they find other fees. Um, but, you know, that's a real deep religious conviction about the nature of economics. And those sorts of things, I'd like to push back deeper in time and ask about indigenous exchange networks in the new world and the and to try to understand them. Guido Pesarosi has started to do this, by the way, and, and looking at things like anti-markets. This is something that I think is a real open, uh, a new area to look at. To me, the, the forces that are anti-market forces are more damaging than something like commodification. And we can see anti-market forces deep in history by people controlling markets and ergo controlling markets to the point where they can control value, price, exchange. So I would prefer that. And that's part of this whole project, if you will, of trying to reimagine political economy because it's saying, let's get out of this Marxist conundrum that we find ourselves in is that you've got to be like an orthodox Marxist or you're a non-Marxist. You know, to me, I'm not a political Marxist. But I understand, especially after 2008, that certain things Marx felt were going to happen have happened. Um, but I look at the Maya and the Aztec, and I say they were actively practicing anti-market uh, um, activities, which to me 
are not Marxist, but they are also not like free exchange. There's some level of control there. So I think we need to reimagine those types of things, those types of relationships. So uh, this is uh, Liam again, I guess uh, continuing on the theme of relationships, but moving far from kind of Marxist politics and politics analysis, go into kind of the specific nature of the development of your collaborative relationship with the um, and especially how you think kind of the um, having um, Ray Gould as kind of an interlocutor um, kind of affected your general project and um, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, the, the word that I would use is boy was I lucky. Um, because with Ray, somebody who when I meet her, she's getting a PhD in anthropology and so she has very strong opinions about the academic world, yet she's also embracing the academic world. So one of the major lines of divide between us, which is the academic as authority versus the actual people whose history I'm interested in, that, that, that point was made much more permeable. That boundary was made much more permeable because I had a collaborator in Ray Gould who was willing to accept that there were things that the academy would give her, in that case, and me as well, um, that provided us with an approach to trying to study that past. So um, I just found that whole process not difficult in any way. It doesn't mean that there weren't difficult moments and moments where I feel really like an intruder and someone who is, you know, you have to really guard against the fact that you're, you're an academic that's driven by career buildings, pressures, and you want to move forward as a scholar and trying to make sure that you're not exploiting those indigenous people who you're collaborating with. And, and again, the nice thing about somebody like Ray Gould is she has really great and rather strong opinions about the academy. So on a regular basis, she'll call me on that. She'll say, yeah, well, that's a kind of a typical academic answer. Why don't you restate that in, in a way that everybody can understand? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, that's, you can only do that if you read E.B. White, as I said last night, versus reading Foucault and folks like that, because their job is to obfuscate everything and make it so difficult to understand that it's it's a truly elitist vocabulary that we share. E.B. White was a wonderful writer because nothing was unclear. And so I'm married to somebody who loved E.B. White, and to maintain our relationship, I had to ask her to stop editing my things because we would just get in fights about well, it's clear to me what I'm saying. And she's like, well, it's not clear to me. And, you know, working through that is kind of what the collaborative process is like. Uh, you, you have to be willing to take criticism. And you have to be willing to accept that the legacy of anthropology in general is not a very positive legacy when it comes to the indigenous folks who anthropologists have always admired and studied, um, yet exploited. Um, this is Alexander. Um, kind of going back to the discussion of capitalism, um, you mentioned that in its current form, capitalism is obviously unsustainable. And so I was wondering
idea for a different economic model? Oh, wow. Um, well, you know, we, I, I mentioned earlier the difference between a revolutionary and a reformist. I have to say that I'm, I'm still in the reformist camp in the sense that I'd like to think that we can reform capitalism because it is dynamic. And, um, and what I mean by that is, is that if you speak with folks who were in Soviet bloc countries, or even a, a country like Finland, for example, that really industrialized in the post-World War II era, you'll see that they were amazed at the dynamism of American capitalism to produce more commodities than you could even imagine. Um, if I look at Sweden as a model, um, Sweden is a good kind of social democracy where capitalism thrives, yet it's underwritten by a commitment to everybody getting enough so that they don't have poverty that we take for granted as a product of natural law in the United States. Now, they have a small population of about 10 million people in a nation the size of California. However, they actually have the poverty that you and I would accept here, they don't have. And they don't have it because it's a reformist capitalism. Um, the, the problem with a, a model that has a sustainable future, um, yeah, let me tell you, if I had a real clear-cut answer to that, I'd be happy to give it to you, but right now, I don't. I just feel strongly that, as I said in that article, that, that I'm not sure climate change isn't the least of our worries, because I just don't know what's going to happen when half the world's population no longer has is employed. Uh, because we just can't keep producing stuff that nobody needs. Um, now, that's why I don't imagine that I'm going to be popular with uh, the current administration. But that's all right, because the future, and I, and I mean this sincerely, I look to all of the younger members, not you, the <laughs> younger members of, of, of the group here. Uh, you have a different view of things, and uh, I think your view will win out, which is more of a reformist view. Replacing capitalism with socialism, especially in a Soviet model, yeah, it won't work. It just it didn't work for them. It, it wouldn't work for us. Uh, so I'm going to make another uh, shift back, and this is Dusty again, uh, to methods. And it seems like community memory was essential in the NITMUC work, um, particularly relating to the uh, Bernie Boston homestead and the Cisco homestead, um, where archaeology might make it seem like they were typical Euro-American uh, households, but community, member has, community memory has identified them as indigenous. So how do you perceive the role of oral traditions in memory, uh, and how do you approach them when it comes to interpreting the past? Okay. Uh, first of all, I was asked this question at dinner last night about, well, did you turn to the oral history? And the oral history has not been given to me. It's not been open to me. Um, I haven't requested it formally, but through Ray, um, we, I've asked her questions. To me, the oral history and the memory is very powerful. Uh, and more times than not, it's more reliable than my archaeological interpretations. 
but more times than I'm, I would have thought possible, they really dovetail quite nicely. Sometimes the interpretation is slightly different. So that when I presented my interpretation of the Sarah Bernie, Sarah Boston household as kind of a classic middle class household, one of the pushbacks I got was from a Nipmuc historian who said, yeah, well, I, would, I don't want to think that way because then I'm imagining my ancestors as just becoming just like the English. My response to that was, well, let's try to imagine that household with children and children who are facing racism and prejudice every day. To me, commodities and the material culture of the sort of English middle class or colonial middle class at that time might have been a good way for household members to mitigate some of that prejudice. Not eliminate it, but at least be able to say to their children on a, on a nightly basis, you're just as good as anybody else. You know, what we have surrounding us here looks just like any of the other houses, except we have something different, and that's what makes us unique. And that view comes through to me in the memory and the oral tradition, not so much as something that's you know, articulated directly that way, but it's more an issue of wanting their children to have a brighter future that is less concerned with prejudices that they, by the way, still face on a daily basis. So to me, they're all part of the picture. I don't care whether one is more powerful or more empirically verifiable than another. As long as, as, as long as for me, I feel like they're believable. Okay, well, that just about uses up our time. I think it's very interesting that we had one of our most political podcast discussions with uh, a self-professed scientist. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. So uh, thank you very much, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our next podcast will be announced soon on siams.cornell.edu. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can see all AAA-sponsored podcasts at AmericanAnthro.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>